We are in John chapter 1 today, verses 19 through 28, and this is the last day of the year. (laughs) Some of you, whoa, others go, thank the Lord, this has been a hard year. What we have today is we have the testimony of John, and actually it's what we'll see in the next three weeks, even though as we read the text, you think that one um, verse is happening right on top of the other. Actually, it takes place chronologically in three days. So just to give you a, oh, just a brief synopsis of what we're looking at, on day one, we'll see that John's testimony is of who he is. It's vitally important, is it not? Uh, theologians have talked about that the two greatest things that we need to answer in life is who God is and who we are. And really with that, we begin to see life accurately. So we're going to see John is giving a testimony of who he is today. Uh, next week, day two in the story, John's testimony of who Jesus is. He'll say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we're not there yet. We'll see that next week. And then finally, day three, John actually sends his disciples to follow Jesus. I'd like to um, give you an accurate, as, much, as far as I can, an accurate picture. John was a rock star at the time when he was uh, at the height of his ministry. And what you're going to see over and over and over again is John is going to continue to deflect off of himself. They think, some people think he is the Messiah, and he's going to say no. And he's actually going to tell them no several times. They're going to ask him six questions. And you know what they come up with? Nothing. And finally, they say, we got to tell the people that sent us, we got to tell them something. Give us something. And he eventually says, I'm a voice. That's all I am. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But we'll unpack that. But let's go straight into the text today. Verse 19, just the first statement. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? First off, John, this is not the writer of the book of John. This is John the Baptist. And just to give you a little bit of background on him, he's the only child of Elizabeth and Zechariah, and his birth was miraculous. Zechariah was one of the priests in Israel, and so he's going in to burn incense one day. His lot came up, and he was chosen one day. Remember, the priest could only enter the Holy of Holies once a year, And since the Ark of the Covenant is no longer there, so he couldn't throw on the blood on the mercy seat. All there was left, it seemed, was the uh, incense that he would take in, and he would burn incense. And you can imagine, as he walks in, and according to tradition, they would put a rope around uh, the high priest's uh, foot as he went in so that if he fell over dead in the presence of God, they could pull him back out without anybody else going in to get him. So you can imagine his fear and trepidation as he goes in there to burn incense and he sees somebody else there with him. And it's an angel, it's Gabriel. And Gabriel tells him, in essence, you've been praying for your wife, you've been praying for a child, and I'm going to give you a child. God's going to give you a child. And he's going to go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah, which is really awesome news. Uh, If you remember when Mary heard that she was going to give birth to a son and she's a virgin, 
she doesn't disbelieve. She believes by God's grace. And she said, how will this be? Like, how's this going to happen? Zachariah, though, is in disbelief. And he doesn't ask that question. Instead, he asked, how shall I know this? Like, he's like a many of us. That, yes, we say we live by faith, but show me first. That's not living by faith. And so, wouldn't you know, Gabriel says, he says, I stand in the presence of God. It's almost like he's looking at him going, you've got to be kidding. And he says, from this point, you're going to be mute. You won't be able to speak until the child is born. And so he comes out of the Holy of Holies and he can't speak. And God in his grace, uh, he and Elizabeth uh, get pregnant and uh, the Holy Spirit is, uh, John is filled with the Holy Spirit in his own mother's womb. And finally, the baby's born, and you can imagine Zachariah is ready to talk, and he can't, because they don't typically name the child for eight days uh, after a child's born, so that's the point of circumcision. So he still can't speak. Eight days later, they're circumcising him, and the neighbors and their relatives say, we should name him Zachariah, as if they could make this call. Maybe they could have, but Elizabeth said, no, no, his, his name is John. We're going to name him John. And they said, there's no one in your family named John. And Zachariah says, or intimates, he doesn't say, uh, hand me a, a tablet. And he writes, his name is John. And then at that moment, his mouth opens up. He's able to speak and the Holy Spirit fills him. And he gives this incredible prophecy, not about John, but about the one that John will serve, Jesus Christ. He eventually does get to John in this prophecy, but two-thirds of that prophecy are about the Messiah. I hope you're reading this around the Christmas time. It's fantastic. Uh, so John is born. He keeps the Nazarite vow. Um, he has no wine, no grapes, no raisins in his life. He lives in the wild. Eventually, he goes into the wilderness where the Lord has called him. And then we have um, what transpires next. And I do want to make one caveat. It's important to note. When they're asking John, who are you? When you read the story in Luke, we know that John is miraculously born. Uh, people would hear about the Holy, that he was somehow, uh, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, that John was in her womb. Uh, the whole countryside was talking about who is this kid? Compare that to Jesus Christ. Who goes and visits him? Shepherds. Y'all, shepherds could not, their testimony could not stand up in a court of law. That's how suspect they were. Who else comes to see Jesus? The wise men, where are they now? They're back in their country. So when you compare in some ways the birth of Jesus to the birth of John the Baptist, John the Baptist is the bigger show in many ways to at least the people surrounding him. Whereas Jesus in his uh, and God's kindness and grace and the way he does things has him be born in Bethlehem in a manger quietly. Yes, there's a star above, but no one knows in many ways. But everyone knew about John the Baptist by this time. Okay? All right. The Jews, they are sent, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Who are the Jews? Well, you, you know that inherently. You've read the text. But listen, 71 times the, uh, that John uses that phrase, the Jews. It's not much in the other um, Gospels. 
Of course, you know it means the ethnicity, the Jewish ethnicity, but many times John uses it to describe the authorities or the enemies. Sometimes they're both. Most times they're both. <laughs> the authorities are actually enemies of Christ. And they're from Jerusalem. That means they probably came from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, just a if you're not familiar with the term, it was the ruling body of the Jews. Remember, Israel's owned by the Romans, but the Romans allow the Jews to have a bit of a ruling party there. And there are, um, so they're out there. Some of these people came from Jerusalem who were probably of the ruling body, the Sanhedrin. In all likelihood, they're Sadducees. Just to give you a quick synopsis of them, Sadducees believed only in the first five books of the Old Testament. And even with that, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And thus, the name you perhaps learned as a kid, they're sad, you see? There you go. Um, well, they're, they're liberals, not politically speaking, but uh, as far as the Jewish faith, they're liberals. Oh, they don't hold to angels. Afterlife, resurrection, what is that? Um, but their power base is not the synagogue. Their power base is the temple the Sadducees. Many of them, well, they were Levites of the tribe of Levi. They worked in the temple. They assisted the priest. And yet, do you remember the difference between priest and Levites? It's important to note. They're both the same tribe of Levi, but the priests are of the family line of Aaron, who's the first priest. Aaron being the brother of Moses, okay? So John the Baptist, keep in mind, is the son of a priest, Zechariah. Does he ever do any work as a priest? We actually don't know. The text doesn't say. The text seems to be making it clear that he's actually called out into the desert, not so much to be a priest, but to be more of a prophet, as we'll see. And they say, who are you? Once again, the guy's well-known throughout the, the country. Listen to this. Matthew 3, 5, and 6 describes his large ministry. It says, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. What's the big expectation in first century Israel? Do you know? Messiah. They were always expecting a Messiah, but in particular in the first century, underneath the boot of Rome, they thought, when's the Messiah coming? But you should note this. Um, a single united Messiah was not uniform in their thoughts. Let me explain. Uh, the Essenes who lived in the areas of, the, of Qumran, which is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, do you remember that story? Um, they, they believed actually in three figures coming. You, you'd have a prophet, you'd have a priestly messiah, priest, and then you'd have a, a kingly messiah. So they expected three persons to rise up at a particular time, prophet, priest, and king. But when you look in the Old Testament through our eyes now, by the gift of God, we go, oh, no, that's the same person. But at that time, there, wasn't, there was a lot of uh, ambiguity. They weren't sure. Well, what's interesting is uh, he confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Um, Aramaic uses the word Messiah. Whenever you see in the Bible Christ and you see Messiah, you're like, which one is it? Same. Greek uses the word Christ. Aramaic uses the word Messiah. And it means the anointed one. If you will, uh, they would do this with kings. They would do this with priests. 
They would put uh, olive oil on their head. And the idea is you are set apart for God. Why oil? It's the picture of the Holy Spirit. And you are set apart in a special way. And he is emphatic. I am not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. Why is he so emphatic? Well, Luke tells us, Luke 3.15, the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So they ask him another question, verse 21. And they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? I am not. Now, remember, last prophet of the Old Testament was Malachi, where he explains in Malachi chapter four, five, and six, he gives a prophecy. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Y'all remembered what happened to Elijah. He didn't die. He's taken up in a fiery chariot to heaven. And just to impress your parents, kids, who's the other man that did not die in the Old Testament? Enoch. That's not coming from a child. Who said that over here? Yes. So... That's for free. But we see here is Elijah's taken to heaven. And so Malachi says he's coming back. Now, it's now been 400 years since they've received a prophetic voice from God. They call it the 400 silent years. God wasn't silent, but he was regarding his prophetic word. Not a word for 400 years. So Elijah, very popular prophet. I would go so far as to say the most popular prophet of the Old Testament and so what, if, what would you do if you wanted to, oh, I don't know, have people listen to you? Maybe you dress up like Elijah the prophet and say that I've returned. Actually, we have emphasis, we have instances of that in Zechariah 13, 4. False prophets that would arise and would wear Elijah's form of dress. And now they're looking at John and saying, are you one of the false prophets? Are you for real? Are you Elijah who was to come? I'd like to bring up three points that you will see that might encourage you to realize that they may have been onto something. Number one, he looks like Elijah. At that particular time, men, you would wear a linen tunic. It's the average man would wear that. He wears a camel's hair garment with a leather belt. Talk about stick out. Yeah. Uh, number two, he lives like Elijah. That, by the way, that's what Elijah wore in the Old Testament, and John's wearing the same thing. He lives like Elijah. You see, Elijah nor John, they're not men of the king's court. Uh, John is living out in the wilderness the way Elijah lived out in the wilderness. He's, he's foraging for food, and he's got locusts and wild honey. And, and you think, does it actually say that Elijah ate locusts and wild honey? It actually doesn't. But I think that's what the Holy Spirit is making it clear. These men lived out in the wilderness and they lived off of the, of the land. Uh, and there could be some symbolism here too as well by John eating locusts and wild honey. Honey, uh, since he's a prophet, he's prophesying to the people, it would be sweet to the taste to those who accept John's message like honey. You, you see allusions to this in Ezekiel and in Revelation as well. W what about locusts? Well, locusts are always a symbol of judgment. And that'd be a symbol of judgment for those who reject John's message. 
So he looks like Elijah. He lives like Elijah. Number three, he sounds like Elijah. It's interesting. John does for Jesus what Elijah did for God in the Old Testament. That is, they spoke boldly for the Lord. They weren't, they weren't fearful men. At 1 Kings 17, we see Elijah arises for the first time. He just kind of appears. And he tells Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. One of the first things you'll notice about Elijah, he's not scared of the king. Now, later on, he does get scared to death of Jezebel, but that's another story. And that was just a, an exception to the rule, really. By God's grace, he's not scared. Even when, uh, even when Ahab tells him one particular time, he says, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah says, I haven't troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. <sighs> what you see about Elijah, he's not as scared of Ahab. And guess who is not scared of the king, meaning King Herod? John. John says, tells Herod, you got your brother's wife and it's wrong. And you can imagine the people are scared to death of Herod. John's not bothered. Another example in the Old Testament of Elijah's unfear, uh, rather courage, 2 Kings 1, where Elijah's sitting on a, on a hill and uh, 50 men surround him and are taking him to the king. And they say, oh man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of the 50 and said, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. Now you would think the next captain would think twice about this, but he doesn't. He goes and he says the same things, but he goes further and he says, come down right now. And then Elijah says the same thing. If I'm a man of God, you know, he <laughs> sends down the fire. Finally, the third captain comes up and he just says, please have mercy on my life. And then God says, you, you can go with him. Do we see John being bold in his language? Yeah. Luke chapter three, verse seven, just like Elijah. To the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, y'all, this is Elijah. Well, there's a problem, isn't there? If you're reading the text, how do you reconcile? How do you reconcile John's denial in, in John 1 with Jesus' affirmation that John was Elijah? Jesus is being very clear in Matthew 11 and Mark 9. Elijah came and he's my cousin, first cousin, John. Well, but John says, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not Elijah. I like what one of the commentators sta states, and he says this, um, C.F.D. Mool, and he says in the book, The Phenomenon of the New Testament, he says this, we have to ask by whom the identification is made and by whom refused. The synoptic gospels represent Jesus as identifying or comparing the Baptist, meaning John the Baptist, with Elijah, while John represents the Baptist as rejecting the identification when it is offered by his uh, by uh, offered him by his interviewers. Now these two, so far from being incompatible, are psychologically complementary. The Baptist humbly rejects the exalted title, but Jesus, on the contrary, bestows it on him. Why should not the two both be correct? Jesus says, "You are the Elijah to come," and John saying, 
No, I'm not. I'm not. Now, let me remember, John is not telling Jesus that. John is telling the enemies of Jesus that. So then uh, begs the question, why would John say he was not the Elijah to come? I don't know about you, but if there was a prophecy written about me in 1623 and 400 years later, I know that I am the man, I'm going to tell y'all I'm the man. But John doesn't do that. Now remember, he had gotten a, his parents had gotten the prophecy in Luke 117, meaning this son will go before Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Listen to me. That's Malachi language. God says this is the Elijah who is to come. So why doesn't John say, okay? Well, two points. Number one, John, or rather the Jews were expecting a literal Messiah. And John is not the literal reincarnation of, of Elijah. And by the way, he couldn't be the reincarnation of Elijah. Why? Because Elijah's not dead, okay? Um, so, but did he come in the spirit and power of Elijah? You bet he did. But the Jews were expecting a literal Elijah. He says, I'm not. And number two, I think it's important to point out John's humility. Incredibly humble. Uh, Leon Morris, one of the commentators, writes, Jesus confers on John his true significance. No man is what he thinks he is. He is only what Jesus knows him to be. So keep in mind, John did not come to build his ministry, his brand, whatever that means for ministers. There was no johnthebaptist.com that people could look up. Uh, he points to Christ, always pointing to Christ. One question that some of you perhaps are wondering, are we still waiting on the coming of Elijah? There's a debate in theological circles. I would put a very f strong perhaps on that one. <laughs> I think so. And I think so because I see that in Revelation 11. But some people would disagree. But point of, point of matter is this. John the Baptist did come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He did fulfill the um, uh, Malachi passage. And yet, could there be a double fulfillment later on in the future? I think so. Some would disagree. Actually, some of the ancient commentaries put forth that view too. Augustine is one of them. And so they say, okay, he's not Elijah. Then they say, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. <laughs> did you catch that about John? First off, he says, I am not, I am not the Christ. And then they ask him, Elijah, uh, I am not. And they say, prophet, no. He keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter answers. Where is the prophet in scripture? Well, in Deuteronomy 18, 15, it was a prophecy of Moses where, where he tells him, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. Now, is he encouraging them to listen or is he giving a prophecy that this one you're going to listen to? Well, it's probably both. And we know that many of the Jews did listen to Jesus, but many of them did reject him as well. But it was clear the Jews were waiting for this prophet to come. And it was, he was unlike Elijah. He, he, he was one that the Jews would, would listen to. Now, the prophet, keep in mind, would bring new revelation from God and lead the people to a new exodus over their enemies. That's what they believed about this prophet. 
So what we see here is Jesus um, is the prophet, that the Jews thought it was going to be a separate office. We see in Acts 3.22, Peter identifies the prophet as Jesus Christ. So the Jews got it totally wrong. You know who got it right? The Samaritans. Surprisingly, the Samaritans actually believed that the prophet to come really would be the Messiah. They got many things wrong, but they got that one right. Verse 22 and 23, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Did you count the number of questions? Six questions. And they're looking at John going, you have given us nothing to go back to our superiors. And it's interesting, think about this. What could have John have said instead of saying, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness? And he's quoting Isaiah 40, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But what could John have said? Well, I was miraculously born. Um, The Holy Spirit filled me into my mother's womb. I am the one prophesied about 400 years ago, the one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He doesn't say anything like that. And I think the reason why is because he's a very humble guy by God's grace alone. He reminds me really of some ways of Paul, Ephesians 3.8, where Paul will say, I am the very least of all the saints. Luke 17.10, Jesus gives a parable how the master of the house will come back and the servants will be there. And what are the servants to respond when they see the master? We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I guarantee you one day when we get the crown on our head, we're not going to be protecting it. We're not going to be putting insurance on it because the fact of the matter is that we will cast them at the Savior's feet only because of the grace that is already at work in us. And he, we are now perfect in God's sight, not, not, just, not just spiritually, but we are in his presence forever. And we will truly be humble. That's why when somebody says, man, you just got to pray for me that I would... I'd be humble. Rather, they'll say, pray for me that I would keep being humble. No, I'm never humble. I haven't reached that. Some of you may have. And if you think you've reached humility, then you know you haven't. One of my old professors at Dallas Seminary put it like this. James Allman would say this. Dr. Allman, he would say, true humility is not thinking little of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself at all. So John is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. I know there's a show called The Voice, but that's not what he's referring to here. He's referring to an Old Testament prophecy, chapter 40, verse 3. Uh, The Old Testament prophecy was calling for the leveling of hills and valleys and to straighten the curves in the road to encourage the return of the Jews from Babylon to get back home. Why would they need to come back home? Because the glory of the Lord was going to be revealed to them. And so that's what Isaiah is calling for in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. You see, in some ways, today's time is not very different from the ancient days. In the ancient times, before a king would come to visit a city, there would be a messenger who would go out to announce his arrival. The townspeople would then clean up the city before the arrival. You see this happening every four years in the Olympics. They clean up the city. They build all these stadiums. Why? The peoples of the world are coming to them. 
And that's what we have here is that the king is coming to the city. And so this voice is John the Baptist. He's announcing the coming of the people. And so really it's a picture of the Lord returning to his people after 400 years of silence. Not only to Jews though, but also to Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And who's going to accomplish this amazing salvation of the Lord? It's going to be the servant of the Lord, spoken of in Isaiah 40 through chapter 66, over and over. So did you catch the message of John the Baptist? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to give you your, your best life now. Or, or, or perhaps become a better you. No, Jesus and John the Baptist both start off with one word, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But I get ahead of the, the game. So he tells them, make straight the way of the Lord. That is just a good phrase to explain the term repentance. It's a turning from sin, it's a turning to the Lord. Uh, and that's what he's saying, make straight. And so the people are coming to him and they're confessing their sins. So even though it doesn't use the word repent right here, it does in other texts as John is speaking to the people. So, uh, and as I heard, I think Breck mentioned earlier, repentance is not just a one-time thing we do in life. It's a gift of God, but we repent, we turn from sin, but it's also, what else? Something we do daily, confessing our sins before the Lord. Not that, we're, not that we need to be forgiven over and over and over again, but to keep short accounts of the Lord, continually turning from sin. All right? So verse 24 and 25, it says here, now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? So this word sent, what irony is this? They had been sent. There's two missions that are colliding right here as one of the commentators states. You've got the religious authorities that are enemies, ultimately, of John the Baptist and Jesus, and they are sent to go find out who is this guy. But what's happened beforehand, God has sent John the Baptist. So it's like there are two ships colliding here in the night. So they say, why are you baptizing? Now, for the first time, we not just see the Sadducees, but who else? Pharisees. Pharisees were in that delegation as well, it looks like. Uh, Pharisees were much more numerous than the Sadducees, and their power was in the synagogue. Synagogues all throughout the land, which are kind of like teaching facilities. Um, they were not part of the temple. That's where the Sadducees had their power base. Now, it's important to note this. A lot of people, when you think Pharisees, oh, that person is such a Pharisee. It's negative, and it should be. But if you were to study the 400 Silent years between Malachi and, uh, oh, Matthew. You know what you find out? The Pharisees are the good guys. They're the good guys. They're the spiritual descendants of the men who successfully opposed Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC. They, they held to the law of God uh, while Antiochus was trying to destroy the Christian faith, or rather the Jewish faith. And they wouldn't stand for it. Many of them died for their faith. These are the spiritual descendants of the good guys. Uh, Hanukkah is what this is about. They are the spiritual descendants of the men who fought and took out the, uh, the Greeks and the Syrians, and they cleansed the temple 
These are the good guys. But what happens? Well, they start to put too much stock in the oral interpretation of the law. They put the fence around the Old Testament law, and Jesus condemns that. And so if you have Sadducees as, um, if you will, liberals, you have the Pharisees as legalists. That might be helpful for you. So they ask, why are you baptizing? They've got three big problems with John the Baptist baptizing. Number one, it is questionable. It is questionable. You see, self-baptism was the mode of baptism. Person would come at a certain point, and he would go to the waters, and he would go down by himself. But John is baptizing them. It's very different. It's questionable. Why are you doing that? That's not the biggest problem, though. The second issue is it's inappropriate, and I intentionally picked a word that's pretty safe and, and sort of, oh, nebulous, but it wasn't just inappropriate. Well, we're going to find out it's horrifying what John is doing. Let me explain. Baptism is for Gentiles who converted to Judaism. Uh, the way it works is that um, if I were, well, I am Gentile, so this will work. Um, my wife and I and daughter decided to join uh, the Old Testament Jewish faith. I would be circumcised and the whole family would be baptized. All the males in the family would be circumcised and the whole family then is baptized. Um, and so that's what would take place. Uh, and there's, there's one caveat I'll say also is that some Jewish people did practice daily baptism, but it was just cleansing. That's all it was, just cleansing. They would get in the water and they would come back out. But by and large, no, it's only for Gentiles. And so what is John doing here? John is treating the children of Abraham just like they're filthy Gentile dogs. And that's why John the Baptist can tell them, making fun of their children of Abraham motif. And he says, God can raise up stones to make them children of Abraham. And so this was horrifying to the Jewish leaders. Not just inappropriate, it was over the top. What are you doing baptizing Jews? They're already Jews. They're already in the kingdom. And John's saying, no, no, no. They have to repent. They have to, there's some, the Jewish system was so bad by then. A third issue is offensive. This was offensive. You see, John has no permission from the religious authorities. He has no permission whatsoever. By his own words, John is not one of these eschatological figures. He's not the Christ. He's not the Elijah who is to come. He's not the prophet. And so the religious authorities are looking at him and saying, listen, if God is doing something new in this nation, it's going to be us who are doing it. It's not going to be you. And so what happens? Luke 7.30, Jesus says, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. It's strangely enough, they weren't just going to make the decisions to reject Jesus. When did the rejection occur? Before Jesus. They were rejecting John, whom God had sent. Now, by God's grace, God in his kindness saves Joseph of Arimathea and seems to save Nicodemus. I think we'll see them in heaven. But by and large, they were rejected. Some of them, we believe, became uh, followers of Jesus in Acts, but many did not. Most did not. 
One other aspect to mention is that as John baptized, the people were encouraged to prepare for the kingdom of God. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says the same thing. So two things that are going on as they prepare for God's kingdom, they should be given to repentance. That is turning from sin and the people were confessing their sins. So the way it worked is John would bring them up and it, it wasn't, tell me how the Lord saved you. John would look at them and say, pony up, let's hear it. And the people would just start confessing their sins. And then at that point, um, we don't know how all this transpired, but John would then baptize him uh, in the water. And at that point, John also told them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you really are going to do this and you need to bear fruit. One other aspect also is that as John baptized and the people were encouraged to prepare for the kingdom of God, not just through repentance, but also anticipation. Anticipation of what? The coming baptism of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, John says that the one coming, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and also with, do you remember the second part? Fire. What is that about? Well, we're not there yet, but just because just I can't help myself. Uh, when a person, the way it worked is that Jesus would baptize them with fire, or rather with the Holy Spirit. They would be given the gift of the Spirit. And also fire. Fire is a cleansing agent. So it's referring to believers only. Or is it? Or is what John is saying is really, some of you are going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And others are going to be baptized by fire eternal fire. It's hard to tell. You're going to have commentators on both sides of that, but you need to study it because it is interesting. Could be that. Verse 26 and 27, we see here that um, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stand one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So when John says, I baptize with water, it's like he's saying, I have divine authority to do this, and I got authority from someone y'all don't even know. He says, among you stands one you do not know. So it begs the question, or perhaps it, we should question this, is Jesus actually there at that moment, listening among them? Or... Or is John saying, there is one living among you, even now you don't know? I think it's the latter, because in verse 29, Jesus comes among them, and then John will say, behold, the Lamb of God. So I think it is the latter, but either way, it's, it's condemning. The Messiah is living among you. God himself is in the flesh living among you, and you don't know who he is. How condemning. If you will, think about in America, the incredibly large number of nuns that we have in our country. It's, nuns? I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, by the way. Nuns, N-O-N-E-S. A study on it is interesting because the nuns, if they have, they're atheists, they're agnostic, they have no formal religion whatsoever. And that number is growing. Now, three out of 10 Americans now consider themselves nuns. Uh, what's scary, especially for the younger folks, is between oh, age 18 to 29, it jumps to 40%. That the number of people that just want nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. 
And, and yet I will note this, when a person decides to abandon Christ, leaves the faith, it's not that the person doesn't believe anything, but now they believe everything. Because doing the studies on these people, they're, they very much consider themselves spiritual people. People, and They hold to crystals and worship of animals and all those bizarre things they can uh, hold to. But uh, what's fascinating is that even now in this country, you still have gospel preaching churches. And these same people drive by those churches every day and they want nothing to do with Christ. And yet looking at their very skin and their eyes, they were created by God and they're, they're not ready to, to meet him. So John says, I'm not worthy. Did you catch this incredible humility? He's the, listen, to strap the, uh, a sandal strap onto a person's foot or taking it off, that is, that is the least worthy task of a slave. And John says, I'm not worthy of that. I'm not worthy. One of the commentators, Henry Morris, writes, to get the full impact of this, we must bear in mind the disciples did, did uh, rather, the, the disciples did many services for their teachers, but there are certain services they would not do. Teachers in ancient Palestine were not paid, but in partial compensation, disciples were in the habit of performing small services for their teachers. But they had to draw the line somewhere, and menial tasks like loosing the sandal strap came under this heading. There is a rabbinical saying in its present form dating from A.D. 250, but seems to be much older than that, and that is this, and I quote, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of a sandal strap. And John says, I'm not worthy of that. Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So this is taking place the east side of the Jordan River, modern day Jordan. It's not the same Bethany on the Mount of Olives, which was the hometown of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. This whole thing is just chock full of finding out who John is. And not only that, but who are these people that are coming to John? And what about these theological concepts? And I think we would be wise. Like I said, this is the end of the year. We're beginning an old year or we're starting a new one. And many of you are going to continue to write on your checks 2023 and you go, oh, that's wrong. What can we learn from these theological concepts and characters? There's much application here. Well, number one, baptism. Baptism, our baptism, at least the one in the water here, is very different than theirs. And like ours, or rather like his, our baptism is filled with anticipation. But not for the first coming of Christ, but for a second. Unlike John's baptism, though, his baptism had no way of keeping the sinner from being dirty again. You can imagine some of these people that had gotten baptized by John and they confessed their sins and they came out of the water feeling like, oh, I feel like a new man. And then they go back to committing the same sins over and over and over again. And certainly we do the same. And yet it's different because for us, we now have the righteousness of Christ, amen? We're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So if we commit sins, we would go back to them. We're just going back to the old, 
oh, sandbox of sin, like a pig that goes back to the mud, but there's a different, there's a different analogy now because we're not pigs that enjoy the mud. I'll say nice, something nice about cats. If a cat falls in the mud, they clean themselves up. And we don't clean ourselves up, but we have the Holy Spirit that cleans us up. We confess our sins. It's different. We don't, we don't love the mud. We fall back in it many times. But there's a difference. And so if you, are not, if you have not been baptized yet, uh, listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've already been baptized by the Holy Spirit. You have a new heart. God took out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. You might as well go public with it. Let's go further. The Bible actually commands that you go public with it. That's the first step of a disciple. Be baptized. Not trying to encourage anyone in here that is not certain of your salvation. Or parents, if you're not certain of your kiddo's salvation, do not get them in the water. You want it to be special for them one day. Um, but hey, if they're there, yes, by all means. Number two, another theological concept like repentance. Repentance is like faith. It's two different sides of the same coin, or we'll use a cell phone, if you will. Two different sides. Um, it's a command. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's also a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. That's one side of the, the coin of salvation. The flip side of it is repentance. It's a command. Repent, turn from sin. But we also see in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, it talks about those that are caught in sin. And it says, if God perchance should grant them repentance, it's a gift of God. So which one is it, Jeff? It's a command or it's a gift? The answer, yes. Don't try to figure these things out. You trust the Lord. You become a believer today. Don't put that off. Trust him. What can we learn from John and the religious leaders? Number one, with John, he speaks boldly of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, you shall be my witnesses. It's not just... I'm telling you to be my witnesses. It's a prophecy. You will be my witnesses. And a witness simply tells what has happened in his life. So speak boldly of Christ. Something else we can learn from John is speak humbly of yourself. Speak humbly of yourself. J.C. Ryle, the old 19th century minister who is friends with Charles Spurgeon, writes this, Never shall we feel the need of humility so deeply as when we lie on our deathbeds. And stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Our whole lives will then appear a long catalog of imperfections. Ourselves nothing. Christ all. And finally, what can we learn from religious leaders? And this is perhaps the scariest part. You can know the Bible, but not Jesus Christ. Jesus even says in John 5, 39 and 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Ryle also says this, it would be better on the last day never to have been born than to have had Christ standing among us and not to have known him. Let me tell you what, if you haven't come to Christ Today is the day of salvation. 
realize that you are a big sinner deserving of the wrath of God. Hell awaits you. You feel the heat at the bottom of your toes. It's going to get much worse than that. Come to Christ today. Trust him alone. He is the shepherd of the sheep. He will take care of you. He will lead you on to salvation. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do pray for anybody in here who has not yet come to salvation. Lord, just grant them faith and repentance, them to trust and, and, and turn from sin. Realize that ultimately we never, we're always sinners, but now we become saints through what Christ did for us on the cross. And Lord, we uh, thankful for the new year. Lord, help us that are trusting in Christ, that you would just grant us that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, life is so short. We don't know when ours will end. So we pray that you would help us to live for Christ, not as a way to somehow earn anything. We're already on the team, but as a way to say, P.S., thank you for what you've done for me. In your son's name we pray, amen.